This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. Hi, guys. Today, I got a very special guest on the podcast. His name is Robert O'Neill. So Robert O'Neill is a retired Navy SEAL. He also deployed more than a dozen times uh, to all the places that we were at war during his time in the United States Navy. And also, he took part in over 400 missions across four different theaters of war. So during his career, he was awarded two silver stars, four bronze stars with Valor, a Joint Service Commendation Medal with Valor, three Presidential Unit Citations, and Navy Marine Corps Commendation Medal with Honor. He was a member of SEAL's team, SEAL Team's Two, four in the legendary development group, also known as DevGru, also known as Still Team Six. And he was part of the mission to rescue Marcus Luttrell, the lone survivor from Operation Red Wings. He was also on the mission that saved Captain Richard Phillips after he had been kidnapped by Somali pirates in 2009. And on one of the most famous ops in United States military history called Neptune Spear, that, that took place on May the 2nd of 2011 at a compound in Abbottabad, Pakistan. He was there for that. And on that mission, he fired the shots that killed Osama bin Laden, the leader of Al-Qaeda who carried out the 9-11 terrorist attack. So he wrote a New York Times bestseller about his life and military experience in 2017 called The Operator, firing the shots that killed Osama bin Laden and my years as a SEAL team warrior. And he's also the co-author of a new book out this week, which will surely be a bestseller. It's called The Way Forward, Master Life's Toughest Battles and Create Your Lasting Legacy. And he did that with co-author and retired United States Marine and Medal of Honor recipient Dakota Meyer. So this was was a great interview. And this is, it's just, it was weird Go leading up to this interview. Like just, I was in my own head. Like, am I really about to talk to this guy? Am I about to talk to this guy that pulled the trigger and shot a bullet into Osama bin Laden's head? Like, it's just a weird thing to know these people and be connected with these people. But in the interview, we obviously get into his upbringing. We get into, you know, why he decided to become a Navy SEAL, you know, what it was like. And, you know, how does one even ascend to being screened to be in SEAL Team 6 or the development group? We went into some of his missions. We talked about the the, the mission that, you know, saved Captain Jack Phillips. We talked about this mission that, you know, took out Osama bin Laden. We talked about some of the infighting and jealousy that happened after that. We go into, you know, this code of silence, you know, how was he able to to even write these books. We talk about Afghanistan and the pullout. We talk about his relationship with his father. And really towards the end there, we talk about his personal faith and we talk about how all the killing he's done and how that all kind of weaves together to affect his brain because there is a weight on the soul of man that has shed so much blood, even if it's in warfare. Guys, we get into all of that and I really, really enjoyed my time with him. It was a great, great time. I hope you guys enjoyed as much as I did, but I'm not going to keep him from you any longer. So without further ado, let's get into it. Rob O'Neill, welcome to Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Thanks for having me, Cal. Great to talk with you. I'm absolutely excited to have you on here. And just so you know, we like to keep things really low key as we start our interviews. We'd like to just kind of ease in, get everybody used to the person that we're talking to. So with that in mind, what was it like when you shot Osama bin Laden in the face? Well, that's um, kind of a lot happened in between. <laughs> hey, no, I'm not kidding. There's no way we can start there, Rob. There's absolutely no way we're going to start there. But don't worry, guys. We will get to You're it. You're the first one to ever start it off like that. It's like, hey, wow, 
you know, because again, three years of life before that, <laughs> bro, we got to keep you on your toes, but let's go ahead and get into the early part of your life. But guys, don't worry. We will get into all that stuff with that mission, but you were born in Butte, Montana. And so I guess the easiest way for us to actually start is what was it like growing up in Montana and how much has the show Yellowstone ruined your home state with tourists? Yellowstone's a fun one because now everyone that I know and uh, all of their kids think they're ripped. So they all have, <laughs> right. they all have the dually trucks. They're all trying to grow that awesome beard. And they all think they're the toughest guy on the planet. And we got—I mean, don't get me wrong—we got some tough guys in Montana, and all those other uh, cowboys are tough dudes. It's just funny now because everyone thinks they're part of the show. I love the show, by the way. The show's amazing. Yeah, it's great. Uh, yeah, it's um, it's it's it was different growing up there because Montana's kind of well, Butte, Montana, especially, is kind of um, uh, in a bubble where you you don't really realize that um, there's life out there. Other than mm. other than Butte, so you, you, it's a sort of a you kind of think everyone from somewhere else might be better than you, right. um, and it's it's almost like well I you know I even I didn't realize until I joined the Navy that doesn't matter if you're the the guy from Long Island or Miami or Chicago we're all mm. it's, it's all our first day and we're all a little bit scared and everyone's pretty much the same which is kind of nice but um yeah it was nice growing up there um I thought Butte Montana was a big city I didn't realize how small it was. I thought it was normal for people to to kind of live between hunting season and fishing season. Mm. Um, the, the the best time of the year was um, the o- opening day, a Sunday of, of antelope season that went all the way through Thanksgiving for deer, elk, everything. If you get a special permit for moose, um, bighorn sheep, stuff like that. But we kind of live for that. Um, go hunting early on every Sunday so you can get back for uh, – because football starts at uh, – the NFL games kick off at, um, what, um, 11 a.m., 11.30 um, mountain time. So you try to get your hunt done and um, watch football and then go to school. And uh, snowy, it's not uncommon to get, you know, 15 below zero during January. And it's kind of, you know, great life, great people, really good food. People don't realize how good the food is there, but they also don't realize in most parts of the country, you don't put brown gravy on everything. That's, you know, that's how we roll. Hey, I... I'll put it on cereal. I don't care. I love brown gravy. But I will say one thing that I thought was funny when I was reading one of your books is how growing up in Montana and seeing how cold everything was is you weren't convinced that people were going to be able to get you cold during your military training. But guess what? I know that Bud's was cold, wet, and sandy. And I know you've been asked about that a million times. And you detailed that very, very well in your first book, The Operator. So we're going to skip over the the cold, wet, and sandy questions. But I do want to always know, I always ask guys that joined the military, for you individually, why join the United States military? But then specifically, why did you kind of point your direction towards the Navy SEALs? Well, it's all an accident. Um, Not necessarily accident, but more like a a game of chance. Like, um, one of my favorite sayings is when you um, make a plan, God laughs at you because the plan's not going to go the way you plan it. Life happens around you as you're planning. My I, my entire um, from maybe seventh grade on was to play college basketball, get a, an education, probably get my business degree and then work with my father. That's my plan. And it just got to a point where and I've seen this everywhere around the country. It doesn't matter where you're from. People have a tendency at a certain age to say, I just got to get out of here. Right. I, I remember hearing a man say that in, in Fredericksburg, Virginia. I heard it in San Diego. And I was at a point, I got to get out of here. And the fastest way for me to get out of there without, you know, packing bags and, and finding a sp- place to live is to join the military. And I, I had two guys that I grew up with that were two years older than me that joined the Marine Corps. And that's all they ever wanted to do. And that was kind of neat. But to me, to me, the Marine Corps seemed like um, that's such a huge goal. I, I, I never do that. But then when it you know, I'm in the age now, I, I got to get out of here. The fastest way is to join the Marine Corps. And plus, I want to look like a Marine. I just think it's cool. The uniforms are awesome. I, I saw a full metal jacket. It looks scary, but that's just cool. The right. Everything from the cadence to the shooting to the, you know, all that stuff. So I went to join the Marine Corps on a whim. And um, 
Uh, it's better to be lucky than good sometimes because as luck would have it, the Marine wasn't there. Uh, there's a it's an it's a recruiting office with you know Navy, Marine Corps, Army, Air Force. Marine wasn't there, and the Navy guy was sitting there behind his desk and he's wearing khaki. He's got the anchors, and um, the only reason I went in there was because my two Marine friends t- told me that the Marine Corps is actually part of the Department of the Navy. It's just a men's department. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so I walked in there to ask him where the Marine was. And he said, why do you want the Marine? I said, I want to be a sniper. I grew up hunting. And he said, look no further. We have snipers here. You need to become a Navy SEAL first. And and um, kind of brushed over that. But I, I liked it. And I, I signed the contract. And then he showed me some videos. And, you know, we don't swim a lot in Montana. A lot of swimming going on with with um, SEALs. But I was like, you know, we're, we're going to give this a go. So instead of going to Paris Island, I'm going to go to um, Great Lakes, Illinois, to Navy boot camp, and then um, hopefully Coronado. And the only thing I did right was I had a buddy that was in the army that joined right out of high school. And he said, um, whatever you do, get it in writing. And that's great advice for life. Get it in writing. And so I got in writing that I would get a chance to go to SEAL training as opposed to the the crap with, um, yeah, just volunteer when you get there. Never believe that shit. Don't, don't ever do business on a handshake. Get in writing. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've heard so many horror stories of recruiters and kind of taking advantage of kids. And you'd hate to say that someone would do something like that, but they've got quotas. They got, they got things they have to hit. Now, just curious, even real quick, as you were talking, let's say the Marine recruiter was there that day. Yep. Do you think you would have just, you know, uh, been fine with being a grunt? Would you have maybe tried to go Marine recon? I know, I know we can't um, like, go back in time. I would have tried to go recon, uh, but I know you have to go infantry first. And the only thing that I really wanted to do, and, and again, now, me knowing nothing about the Marine Corps as far as Marines listening, I would have wanted to get in riding Paris Island and not San Diego. Nothing against either side. Yeah. I just, I, for, I had, I already, I'd heard about the sand fleas. And I just wanted to, I know people are going to think I'm an idiot for saying that, but I mean, if you're going to do it, do it that way, I guess. Hey, I completely understand, but you did go the SEAL route. Obviously, you got through. And again, in your book, The Operator, which we talked about a little bit off air and we'll get more to here in a second, you go into a, a tremendous amount of detail in your upbringing, kind of the story that you just told, you know, what Buds was like, and you, you give a really behind the scenes look on what people are interested in, which is Buds. But eventually, you became a member of the development group, otherwise known as DevGuru, or I guess colloquially known as SEAL Team 6. Mm-hmm. But people don't really understand in the general public, right? They watch movies and maybe they've, they've read some articles, but they don't really understand what the process is like. Now, I have a friend that was was in that, and so I kind of got a little behind-the-scenes look as to kind of what the screening process was like. But I guess give us a description of what the process was by which a SEAL screens for and makes it onto SEAL Team 6. Well, SEAL Team 6 is, is at first, at least when I when I went through training in 1996, um, we, had, we were even told as trainees that it's gone, like it doesn't exist. Um, and it turned into Naval Special Warfare Development Group, which is uh, they just developed their older senior guys. So yeah, I went to SEAL Team 2. You know, you get divided by numbers. Um, mm. uh, odd numbers are in San Diego, uh, even numbers in Virginia Beach. Um, so I went to SEAL Team 2, and I, I picked that place because right at then, at the time, the only real thing going on was Bosnia and Kosovo, and it's just a peacekeeping mission. Not a lot of – I mean, a little bit of shooting here and there, but nothing. No war. <clears throat> but I went over there um, – was on the East Coast, got you know, got a hangout with uh, SEAL Team 2, 8, and 4 guys, meet them out in town, train, all that stuff, and then, um, you know, do a deployment. I did My first one was a MARG, so I was on a Navy ship, the Mediterranean. Um, we did get into, um, like, little stuff here and there, but mainly just training with allies, and you go back to Virginia Beach, do another platoon. I ended up doing a few platoons, and then you start to realize a lot of the older guys at SEAL Team 2 that were running the workouts would eventually go over to Dev Group, and you kind of start to get the word, yeah, you, SEAL Team 6 is, is real. And people are going there. And you see guys go and come back and fail, but other guys go and stay, run into them overseas. And then you, you, you kind of get, after like five or six years, 
you're like, okay, we can go to this place and you just put in the proper paperwork, get approved by your command. And then there's a screening process with a really hard workout, um, a lot of intense interviews, psychological evaluations, a hard workout. And then that's when they decide if they bring you to what's called a green team hmm. or they call it selection and training, which is like a nine or 10 month selection course full of, <clears throat> it's all Navy SEALs. Um, and when I went through right around my era, about 50% of the guys who went to green team didn't make it through. So these are, you know, approved seasoned Navy mm-hmm. SEALs that half of them don't make it. And it's all, you know, close quarters battle, CQB, skydiving, uh, military operations, urban terrain, uh, water stuff, boat stuff, uh, high-end diving things. And, and, but again, CQB, 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 and, um, all very, very intense tactics. Um, Mind games, um, and, and just really hard, like you know, twelve mile runs followed by all day CQB, just just um, you know, tactics and stuff, and and um, it's you know, best time of your life, but it's also the worst time of your life because you have access to all the bullets you want, all the training you want. You fly in a private jet to different spots, but then they destroy you. These instructors destroy you, and they're just dicks. Like I'm surprised I'm going to work with these guys. They just, but again, it's a game they turn on. They get into yeah. your head, see how you can handle pressure, and also. See how well – this is great advice. See how well you can get over it. Whatever it is, mm-hmm. can you get over it? I remember, you know, like having the best runs of my life down at Shaw's in, in Mississippi, you know, live fire stuff, but then screwing up once and then it compounds and compounds. To the next run, they, they have me carrying a broom because they're telling me they don't trust me with a gun. Right. Then you get over that. Just get through this run one bite at a time. So, yeah, you get through that. Um, it Usually when I went through, it finished in December, and then you get assigned to one of the squadrons. I got the squadron I wanted, then I um, I deployed one year with my squadron a year after I, I I checked in. Yeah, I think that's an interesting way of kind of looking through all that. And to be honest, it's it's fun to hear you talk about that because I talk about resilience all the time. And that's the ability to bounce back. Everybody likes to talk about strength and strength is fine, but strength wanes over time no matter what. Father time is undefeated regardless of its physical strength, mental strength, or spiritual strength. But for you, I guess, like even quickly, with green team, what would be a, a way that you would not make it through screening? Because I'm assuming guys aren't falling out on the runs during this period, but like what makes it only, you know, half of the guys get through? What are the well, things that would send you, a guy home? You, you can fall out of runs too. They're not time runs. They're just kind of just okay. dick, dick draggers to see if you can do it and right. you know, we got the big guys who can't run and the little guys who are pushing the big guys and all that shit it's just a, a mind game but but um ways you can i mean even in the screening process before you get to actual green team there, there's like they, they'll hand your bio which is a picture and a blurb about you to guys around um that are already there and you get a thumbs up or a thumbs down from the guys and like if they know you from like you were at a bar and you're a jackass now this guy's a jackass you can not make it because of that you can screen negative and then um you know, when you get into training, safety violations, obviously, anything major, um, uh, they'll kick you out that day. Like I had a dude take a horrible shot right past my uh, face one time. And, and I looked up at one of the instructors that I knew and he said, hey, O'Neill, I was going to blow the whistle, but I think I swallowed it because it was so bad. Yeah. And then they had us leave the room. They kick him out. You never see him again. Um, so it's I mean, like I said, you can be having the best best time of your life. You screw up one major thing, you're out. And and it's it's that simple. And if it's bad enough, you're never coming back. I mean, sometimes they'll give you an opportunity to try again with the next class or, or you know, the next year, maybe, maybe not. But, uh, you know, anything from, like I said, um, knowing Navy SEALs, anything from an alcohol-related incident to a fight out in town to either beating someone's ass or you getting your ass beat, you, you're, on a, you're, on a, you're in a selection process and they take it very serious. But, well, I, mean, 
again with Navy SEALs too, we're pretty good about, I, I used to refer to us as a professional 12 year olds because we'll do some stupid <laughs> shit. But at the same time, it's like, you don't want somebody that's going to be a screw up. You don't want somebody that you can't trust, especially if it's going to be the sensitive missions that you guys are on. So obviously that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and obviously we've, we've talked a little bit about the operator. That was your first book. That's kind of your, your memoir about your life and about some of your, you know, I guess, things that you did in war. And then we've got the new book out this week, which is called The Way Forward. And before we really get into The Way Forward, because I want to ask you obviously more about that, there's obviously the code of silence, right? Everybody's kind of heard of it, you know, the quiet professional moniker. And, you know, as we get to the end of some of your more important missions, we'll get more into kind of how that maybe affected your relationship with some of the guys you thought would be friends for the rest of your life. But for a guy like you, I know you probably still have that internal dissonance about like, should I be talking about this? Like, that's not what the old guys did, but kind of give me an idea because we're two books in now. I'm sure it's not going to be the last one. How do you deal with that kind of internal dialogue with the code of silence being, well, I mean, being at, a real thing? At first, that's a tough one. Um, and now that I look back on it, it's kind of funny because the, the, the first question that anyone asked, including myself, when, when, when someone found out bin Laden was dead, the first question they asked was, who got him? Right. And so my name was being thrown around before we even took off from Abbottabad. But what made me laugh is I talked to some of my friends back home and what they said, because I'm kind of known as I tell stories, I tell jokes, I'm all about morale. And they would say, who got him? And they, they'd say, O'Neill did. And the most common response was, oh, shit, we're never going to fucking hear the end of this. Right. <laughs> kind of as a joke. But um, <clears throat> um, um, yeah, it's, it's, it was it, it was, that was a lot of toothpaste that you can't get back in the tube when that first started. Um, what I did realize the hard way, too, is that um, – um, as long as you get it approved and you're not giving up tactics or putting anyone at risk, you, you should be able to tell your story for historic sake. I'm, I'm happy that George Washington had a biographer when he crossed the, the Delaware to fight the Hessians of the Revolutionary War. I'm glad we know about Iwo Jima. And I think we should know about this story. And it's, you know, it's, it's a historic moment every, from the intel to the, the, the powers that be that made the call to the, the pilots and the air crew to the guys that went through the house. I mean, you know, it is what it is. Um, but I, you know, there, there's a, if you go to any bookstore, there's a huge section that says military history. A lot of right. people tell their stories. A lot of people have written books and, and, uh, um, the, the code of silence. I mean, whatever, fine. If you want to do it, that's great. Um, no, the story was out there. I, I, uh, I, I, I thought we all should have been friends forever, you know? And again, it's, I, I can't, you know, what, what you think of me is none of my business and you're not going to make everyone happy. It, you know, it just, it is what it is. I'm glad, I'm glad that some of the stories were told. And I, I hope even with that mission, I hope, Everyone has that. There's 23 different versions of what happened, and I hope everyone tells theirs. Right. Hey, got to control the controllables. And there's certain things that you can control. You can't control what other people are going to think. But let's talk about the new book. So again, out this week, The Way Forward, Master Life's Tough toughest battles and create your lasting legacy. So I guess give us an idea, because I know a lot of the people in this audience have read The Operator. How is this book different from your memoir? And I guess, how did it come about for you to co-author this, you know, with Medal of, All, Medal of Honor recipient and your buddy, Dakota Meyer? We um, we were speaking for the same agency, so we got to know each other that way. And then, we, you know, through different things, we met each other, different charity events, and just talking about um, common experiences and how a dude from Montana and a dude from Kentucky can all of a sudden get thrust into the, the limelight. And what, what next? What do we do now? And we sort of talked about, I mean, everything from, um, you know, people, the further we get away from combat, the harder it is. Because like there, me personally, there are people that I shot before in houses that I, no, not Bin Laden, but like, I wonder, did we fight each other just because we were born on different sides of the planet? Like, if I had met you in a coffee shop somewhere else, would we have laughed together? Mm-hmm. Like, why are we fighting? We don't even know each other. And and um, th- there's kind of common 
common human elements to combat that a lot of people that, you know, like that, that where that's stupid. I like to kick doors and shoot fuckers in the face. No, you don't. Cause you never have. Right. Um, and, and just the way forward, meaning it's almost like the thing with the code of silence. Like you should just shut up and, and live your life. Um, they say once a seal, always a seal. No, um, I was a seal. No, I'm not. I, I was in high school, but I'm not a high school student. I was in college, but I'm not a college student. I was a seal. Now I'm not. What now? What do we do next? Everyone has tomorrow. Everyone also has their first day somewhere, and everyone was scared, whether or not they admit it. What do we do now? Whether you're the guy in bin Laden's bedroom or the CEO of a company, we've all had the first day. We've all been scared. But what what next? What's the way forward? And that's what it's kind of about. <clears throat> we tell a couple of combat stories, but a lot of them are um, pre-combat and post-combat. Like I've got a story when I went hunting with, um, well, even the, the guy that I brought up, that was in the army that told me to get it in writing. I went hunting with him, my brother, who is not a hunter. He's a DJ and he likes to smoke weed. Excellent story in that book, by the way, right. is how, how we end up in different spots. And, uh, you know, we, we were in seventh grade hunting elk and now we're 35 years old trying to hunt whitetails in the powder river. And, you know, Tommy shoots, uh, my brother, Tom shoots a deer while he's wearing his pajamas from the porch. And it's like, Tommy, why'd you shoot that thing? He's like, he was coming right for us. You know, right. like, so just, you know, life lessons that, um, Life goes on. Yeah, absolutely. And and at some point you have to pick up and think about your former life and realize that there's still a you after this. But I guess if you could encapsulate the way forward, and we're going to talk more about that. And I've got some quotes throughout the book as we continue on here. What do you want people to get out of the book? Like, because there, there's got to be a goal somewhere. What, what do you want people to get out of it? We're all similar. We all, um, um, it's, it, it's, it's sort of like, what do you do with it? What's your mindset? Um, it doesn't matter what you look like or where you're from. You can do anything, but don't, don't be the victim. Um, where, wherever you are, be there. And you can, you can be part of anything. You can start stuff, you can follow stuff, you can lead stuff, or you can, you know, sit on your ass and do nothing, which a lot of people like to do. But um, there is a way forward. That's kind of what, you know, and also, um, you know, it's okay to be serious, but don't be afraid to have a good time because when it's all said and done, none of us are getting out of this alive. Yeah, absolutely. And guys, again, that is in the show notes we're going to be talking about throughout the the episode here, but you can go and check that out and get a copy for yourself. But now I want to get into a few of your missions specifically. And I guess one that is very famous that you were on is the mission to save Captain Richard Phillips. So very famous mission, not the least of which because Tom Hanks played Captain Phillips in a blockbuster movie by the same name. In The Operator, you get into a lot of detail about the mission. So I'll leave that up to you guys to go and check that out for yourself. But I found something interesting. It was almost like a little bit of a throwaway section whenever you're describing the story is while the three snipers were engaged uh, and, you know, killed the pirates on the lifeboat. You were personally somewhere else on the USS Bainbridge coming up with alternate plans yeah. if the sniper option didn't go well, right? I was, so, I, was on the, I was on the Boxer, which is the uh, the flat top, which was the, the like the, uh, the the mothership. And the Bainbridge, okay. the Bainbridge was towing the, um, the, the, the lifeboat with Captain Phillips in it. And so on the flight over, uh, it was uh, just under 16 hours we, um, SEAL Team 6 had never done this. We, we were designed to rescue hostages at sea, and we've been training on tactics since, well, not we, but the team, since like 1981. And um, in that time, you would think from 1980, 1981, up until 2009, we should have thought of everything. But we never thought of a Navy destroyer towing a lifeboat with fully encased. Right. <clears throat> so the easiest way to to try to come up with something is have everyone – come up with something. Everyone come up with a plan, everyone. And um, we'll just look at them and, and we'll take the top five and then we'll go from there. So we came up with a couple different plans and, and the snipers were put out on the fantail of the Bainbridge to watch them for security, make sure nothing unsafe happened. 
So they're just watching them. And, um, you know, there's other stuff going on. Guy trying to, you know, they're trying to negotiate the, the whole time because we didn't go there to kill those guys. It wasn't like the movie where we went three, two, one, execute. Right. Yeah. So um, we had the, the, the main operations center was on the boxer. That's where the majority of the team was. And the snipers and a small uh, group from another, from our squadron and, and another squadron were on the, the Bainbridge. So I, I thought it was cool to go to the chief's mess to get coffee. And we're, um, we're getting coffee because we think we're going to do one of the other missions that we came up with. And um, we started to get word that um, they got him. And my first reaction was, got who? Right. And they're like, we got, no, we got him. And, um, you know, that's, that's not my story to tell because uh, I wasn't one of the shooters. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's amazing to uh, think that those snipers took those shots without the countdown. And if you think about how cool it is that they were, they were in their own beds in Virginia four days before that. Mm-hmm. And we hadn't done this over 25 years. And it's a long weekend on Easter. You, you know, those guys could have blown it off and said, I'll sight my guns in on Tuesday when we come back to work. But they didn't. They're, their guns were sighted in for the most difficult shots of their lives because that's how they are. That's how they work. They're just badasses. Yeah. I mean, hearing people describe the the shots, I mean, because you've got the Bainbridge moving, you've got the lifeboat moving, you've got an angle like it was not an easy shot. And they're, and they're towing it in, too. Right. So of all the the other missions, I don't know if you can actually get into this. I don't know if this is like, you know, any tradecraft or something like that. But of all the other alternatives, aside from the one that y'all did, was there one that maybe stuck out as like, okay, if that doesn't work out, here's probably the thing that we're yeah, going to end up doing. I thought the best idea was to um, to give the village elders communications radios and to give the pirates radio so they could talk to each other. <laughs> Tell them we're going to bring them back because you got to figure that these pirates were not Al Qaeda. This, these are not terrorists. They're, they're criminals and they're out of cot, which is their, um, yeah. their drug. They're seasick. They're probably hungry and thirsty. They realize they fucked up and all they want to do is go home. So if we could talk to them into maybe bringing them, you know, as the sun's going down, bring them in inland, jam the communications. And then I'll have my team on the, on the beach waiting for them. Not, they don't realize it. And we just handle it how we handle it. Like, we probably won't even need to shoot these guys, but if we need to, we got the drop on them. And that, that to me made sense. That's why I was very comfortable getting coffee. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm glad that that mission worked out that way, but now we're going to get into the mission that obviously you're most known for one of the most famous missions ever. And that's operation Neptune spear. That is the uh, mission that resulted in the death of Osama bin Laden. So if you would, I know there's a lot of detail. You go into this and a lot of detail on the operator and you do talk about it in the way forward a lot as well. Get us up to speed on the unique recall of your team back to the base, because that was kind of an an interesting thing, all the way up to when you were initially briefed on the mission, because there was a lot of confusion. Hey, why are we here? What are we doing? There was a lot of kind of caginess going on. But get us up to the point where you were first briefed. Well, we were um, we had just finished a deployment uh, in Afghanistan. I was running some outstations uh, out of the main base in Jalalabad, Afghanistan, like, like five outstations as a senior enlisted advisor. And we just got back. We had our two weeks leave with our kids and everything. And then we started our workup, um, you know, for the next deployment. So <clears throat> the first um, the first trip we used to like to do was obviously get some training, but also some, you know, boost morale. Like some guys went rock climbing, but it happened to be near Vegas. Um, some guys went skydiving in, in, in Tucson. And then we went we went diving in Miami because, you know, you can work with some currents. You can get some no kidding, good diving and good water. But then you're in Miami. Chill out, mm-hmm. cocktails, happy hour, all that stuff. So we were down there, just finished deployment, and we we got a call. We were having drinks at happy hour on the beach, and uh, my boss got a call and said, hey, they're calling you and you and you. Uh, we got to go back to Virginia Beach. This is something. Something's going on. And we knew something was up because our overall uh, commanding officer was supposed to go diving with us, 
and he didn't. He had to go to Washington, D.C. Obviously, he's getting briefed. We're excited because the boss isn't here. We're in Miami. It's going to be awesome. So we got called to Virginia Beach. Some of the guys from, from out west got called in, you know, in Vegas. And they brought us into a, into a room, and they, they, they wouldn't let all of the squadron in. They just brought, like, 28 of us in. Hmm. And the first thing they basically said was, hey, this is real. Um, we found a thing, and it's in a house, and it's in a bowl in a country, and you guys are going to go get it, and you're going to bring it back to us. And, and show it to us. And that was it. And they wouldn't tell us what it was, how we're getting there. They told us that no um, no Air Force guys were coming with us. So if you know how to use a radio, bring it. If you know how to be a medic, bring it. Because we're not bringing PJs or CCT. We just don't have the fuel for the weight. We need all, all Navy SEALs. So we didn't know what it was. We assumed it would be Libya because um, Gaddafi um, – uh, the Arab Spring started in Tunisia, the uprising in yep. Egypt and Libya. We assume maybe we're going to go get him because uh, not kill him, but like grab him because, you know, stuff's changed and maybe they want to try to get a brief out of him. Right. And then they fed us some shit about um, secret uh, communication lines on, in the Pacific. It's like, that's not us. We're not. No, come on, guys. Yeah. So they're trying to think of some shit to tell us. But they, um, you know, they, they eventually said, get your gear ready. Do this. Here, here's these two platforms. Didn't tell us what they were. Um, and just get your gear ready. So we did, and then they finally sent us home on a Friday. Be with your kids, come back on Sunday. So we um, we kind of figured out based on, you know, we're going to drive somewhere and get briefed. They sort of said who's going to be there on the drive down. We're kind of saying, I yeah, we think this is Bin Laden. Hmm. And um, we got there. That's when we met the team, the, the agency team with the the main woman that was portrayed as Maya in Zero Dark Thirty. Hmm. And um, she, the commanding officer, of SEAL Team Six, came in and he said. Um, the, the reason you guys are here is this is as close as we've ever been to Osama bin Laden. And he handed it over to her. She came up. She started briefing us on how she found him. And it's like a couple hours of brief, get up for some coffee, and they brought donuts and come back. And, she's, and it's almost like, look, we believe you. You're right. You're so smart. I don't – I stopped following. Like, I'm going to – I'm smart enough to carry a sledgehammer and a gun. You just tell me where you want me to go, and I'll go there. How about that? <clears throat> but she was the first person I ever heard say the word Abbottabad. And hearing her say Abbottabad, Pakistan, because I'm, you know, I'm used to hearing towns and villages and cities of targets, but like Abbott, I've never heard of Abbottabad. This is a real place. This is legit. And then we started training on it. We we um we had a two-scale model. We talked about it. They they um Admiral McCraven was running the show. He was smart enough to let the guys uh on the ground come up with the plan, which we did. And then we worked on contingencies. Um, what if he does this, 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 all this stuff. And then, you know, we would train with helicopters on a site that they had built and then all day, all night. And then we go back and we talk about it in between games of ping pong. And, um, one night, um, one of the bosses said, what's the worst thing that could happen? And the youngest guy in the room said the helicopter could crash in the front yard. (laughs) And we're we're really standing around like, what the fuck, man? Why would you even offer that right now? But he's like, I don't know, maybe we should talk about that for 30 seconds. And we did, and that's what happened. Yeah. Um, so we, we trained in a spot on the East Coast. We went out West, trained in another spot. And the training was really um, – like when they told us it was Bin Laden, we, there was no high fives. There was no cheering. We kind of just looked around. We're like, cool, are we going now? Because we're ready. Like we're, And the only reason they picked us was because of our training cycle. We Because we were supposed to be training, no one would notice that we're leaving to train. There's other squadrons. If, if they stopped uh, working in Afghanistan to train, someone would notice. If the guys were waiting for national contingencies, they would notice. There's, we're supposed to be leaving, so we did. And um, we went out west, trained there, and we're just showing the powers that be that we are one of your options and here's what we can do. 
And that was, um, and I think I got the word, I didn't hear it personally, but that President Obama said, um, I was never convinced Bin Laden was there, but after seeing what you're capable of, you guys could go and find out and get out. Yeah, that, that's a really great story. And you had a lot of great quotes that you found that uh, President Obama said during that time period. But the yeah. thing that I found interesting is you guys kind of maybe figured it out it was Bin Laden before you were told it was Bin Laden. You do all this time training. You're doing all these things to prepare for what you're doing. But the thing that seemed obvious, and, and you admitted this yourself, is that you and your SEAL brothers expected to die on this mission. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you, you guys thought, I mean, it's saying a suicide mission is kind of a coy way of saying it, but you guys just assumed that this place is going to be, you know, set to blow. If we go in there, yeah. he's going to be wearing a bomb vest. Hey, we're not going to be able to get out alive and we're definitely not going to go spend the rest of our lives in a Pakistani prison. Yeah. But yeah. talk me through that a little bit, because that's, that's something that most of us, like none of us have to think about, man, you know, I'm probably going to die if I record this podcast or try to sell this deal or, you know, go into this work yeah. thing. No one really has that as a part of their normal life. So explain it to us who will well, never go through that. The way, the way that we, we didn't say it's a suicide mission, but we, we, the way we would talk to each other was like, you realize this is, this is a one way mission. Um, cause you know, these, these, the fucking pilots haven't even heard of these helicopters. So we don't know if they work. They've never flown them. <laughs> right. um, the, and this is not a third world country. We're not, you know, we're, they probably have Russian or Chinese made air defense. Um, and a missile against a, a helicopter is nothing. We don't know if it works. Um, there's no refueling stations on the way in. Like if you fly from from like Al-Assad over to Ramadi, you can stop and get fuel somewhere. You're going over into Pakistan. You're, you need to know how much fuel you have. You're going to run out. <clears throat> if anyone's going to blow himself up, it, hindsight being 2020, he didn't. But if anyone, like look what just happened in Syria. That dude blew himself up. Right. On the third floor after a helicopter went down. Um, there's going to be gunfire, no doubt about it. And, you know, if we might, the first people to respond are not going to be the Pakistan military. It's going to be the local police. And first of all, we don't want to kill them because we're in their country. We're not at war with them. Now we also don't want to surrender to them. What's it going to come down to? You know, I'm not going to go to prison in Pakistan. So these are the things that we're thinking of. Um, and we had to have that talk. Why are we doing it? Well, and some of the stuff we came up with were, well, you know, we're we're going after bin laden for the first americans to fight al-qaeda and those were the passengers on flight 93 and and they they were just going on a business trip or going out to see a, a friend in california and the last thing they did before they fought to the death was vote and that's fucking america um it's for the single mom who dropped her kids off at elementary school on a tuesday and 45 minutes later she jumped to her death out of a skyscraper because that's a better alternative than whatever is going on inside at 2500 degrees fahrenheit which we'll never understand like physically grabbing the hand of a stranger, looking down and making a choice. She was never supposed to be in the fight. That's why we're going. And we were comfortable with that. Uh, so it's a one-way mission, but that's, and that's a mindset. And what was, what was good about that was once you accept it, then there, I mean, I'm not a belie believer in no fear. I think if anyone tells you they've been to combat and have no fear, they're yep. a sociopath or they're lying. Right. But it's okay to be afraid. It's normal. It, it makes you think. But um, this one was like, it, it, was, it wasn't even fear. It was acceptance. I, I'm ready now. I'm focused. That was the mindset. I mean, no, don't get me wrong. There were complete studs on that team. They're like, oh, we're good. It's just a longer flight. We got this. Right. But and again, it's good to kind of have an idea of where you guys were, because I'm sure that had a calming effect on you as well, because totally. you obviously knew what the potential outcomes were and you were comfortable with that and okay with that. Yeah. And so at this point, I think it's, it's only, you know, appropriate for me to kind of step away from the mic a little bit and let you go ahead and just describe the mission to us. So y'all get, y'all get the go ahead. We're going yeah. hot. Like we're going to do this thing. So describe the mission itself and at least get us to the point 
where you are about to engage the yeah. occupant of the okay. third story of the compound because right. I got a quote I want to read about that time period. But get us all the way yeah. there. Well, um, and I just saw, I just talked to one of my guys yesterday. One of the he was actually the sniper that initiated the fire on the Captain Phillips thing. He was also on the Bin Laden raid. So I'm still in touch with a lot of these guys. But I remember seeing him too, and um, we, we they gave us a final brief before we're go, like we're in our gear, we're gonna go. And uh, Admiral McRaven had us all. In, you know, he was talking to us, and he, he said, um, um, "You know, last night I watched my favorite movie, Hoosiers." And the best part of the movie is when the team from Hickory is up in the state championship. They've never been out of their town, never seen an arena this big. And everyone's kind of starstruck with the size of it. And he got the shortest guy on the team to get on the shoulders of the tallest guy. And he put a tape measure from the rim down and said, what's the, what's, how tall is that or whatever? And he goes, 10 feet, coach. He goes, now what's the distance from the back of the rim to the free throw line? He goes, 15 feet, coach. And coach said, um, these are the exact measurements of your gym in Hickory. Um, this is just a bigger audience. And he goes, you guys do this every single night. It's just a bigger audience. Hmm. And so we're leaving. So that's McRaven's speech. And I remember talking to him and I said, you know, you're so busy with what's going on right now. I really doubt you watch Hoosiers. <laughs> right. However, you were born to tell us that right now. Yeah. And then we went out. We had a fire. We took a picture and um, got on the buses, drove to the helicopters, gave each other hugs, you know. <clears throat> and, it's, you know, we've done it before. But every mission is like, all right, see, whatever. Now it's like, all right, man, see you see when we get there, got in the helicopters and and then we took off and we left. And uh, so we're leaving Jalalabad. Normally when you're leaving Jabad, you like fly up the river, maybe a Sadabad, turn left, going to the Korangal, Shuriak or Pesh River Valley. This time you go to the right. Now you're flying into Pakistan. And uh, now, you know, you get, you know, you hear the pilots say, okay, we're Pakistan airspace, whatever the cover was. Now you got 90 minutes to think about getting shot down. So this is the first step. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, you know, it's like I'm sitting in a folding chair. I got Cairo right next to me at my feet. Cheese is back here, and then I got guys over here. And I'm, I'm just, you know, we're in tight, but we're guys realize that worrying about a missile is not going to stop a missile. So stop worrying about it. Like if you're worrying about something in life that your worry is not helping, stop wasting your energy. It's just, it's not going to happen, or it is. Um, and so I looked over. One of my guys had his uh, his uh, headphones in, and he's sleeping. And I remember looking at him, thinking, "You're asleep." literally on the ride to Osama bin Laden's front door. <laughs> right. And I'm thinking weird thoughts like, A, you have ice in your veins, and B, I see why women find you attractive. Man. So, and all I'm doing is to keep my mind off, because you can hear the helicopter and you can see you guys. I'm counting to keep my mind occupied. I'm, I'm I, you know, you got to watch going, but, and you can hear the updates, uh, but I'm counting from zero to a thousand, thousand to zero, just to sit there and, you know, whatever, and uh, just keeping your mind off. And then, you know, we, we bank to the South We're 80 minutes in, it's kind of, it's faster. You can feel the pilots, you know, you're th- everything in between thinking a little bit about your kids to how cool the pilots are. Cause they're just, they're there getting us in there. And this is awesome. <clears throat> and then somewhere in there, when we banked to the South, I was counting and, and I don't know how I remember it, but I could hear his voice. I could hear George Bush's voice. And I said, freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward and freedom will be defended. And it kind of hit me. It's like, wow, this is it. I'm on this mission. We're going to kill him. And it's kind of like, uh, you know, I'm with 22 of the baddest motherfuckers in the world. There, There is no way we're going to fuck this up. So you, we did another thing. And then, and I love this part too. Um, about a minute out, the air crew pulls the door open. And here's what I like about that is there's so many pieces of the puzzle to get to the end result. The air crew, they, they put their butts in the seats too, these guys. Mm. If we get shot down, they die just as dead as we do. They risked their lives. Their job was to keep the air thing running, keeping us whatever, and opening the door. Can you imagine if two helicopters landed 
and 23 assholes couldn't figure out how to open the fucking door. <laughs> right. The little things, we got it open, right? And so we look out, and I'm looking out the side of this thing, and you can kind of look out here. We're coming up in Bin Laden's compound. And I know there's a, just from the map study, there's a golf course, and there's um, lights, and I'm, I'm thinking, um, this is a resort town. This is not a war zone. And I'm kind of smiling, this arrogant smile beneath my nods, and I'm thinking, this is some serious Navy SEAL shit we're about to do. <laughs> so um, the plan was we were in the second bird, Dash 2. Dash 1 was going to ho hover in front of his house in between the guest house, the main house, fast rope. And then the snipers come down. We're going to let snipers, the dog and a machine gun out. And then we're going to go to the rooftop, fast rope onto the roof and then jump to um, his balcony. However, we can get down there. Cause at th we're assuming at this point, he's going to be up and there should be a window that we might be able to shoot through. As soon as we let our guys off the, the pilot of the first one realized he, he was getting an updraft and, he, and, and <clears throat> he explained to me that, an inexperienced pilot would have tried to power through whatever effect he's having. That would have rolled it. He would have killed everyone. But he, he looked in the, he knew the, he knew damn well what the thing looked like. If he can turn it and pin that tail on the fence, he can, he can pin it. And that's what he did. <clears throat> they let us off and, and our pilot's going to put us up on the roof now, but he sees what happened and, and he real, I don't know if they're talking, we can't hear him, but he realized if he can't hover, I can't hover. So he just put us down and, He's telling us, and we kind of realized he's telling us to get out for whatever reason. So we got out there, and I remember looking at Bin Laden's house and just kind of thinking, well, I guess we start the war from here. We knew that there was um, a spot to my – looking at it uh, to my left, which is the northeast corner, there's a double door. So the breacher went up there with a seven-foot charge of C6, which is a huge bomb. Uh, it'll open everything. He put it on there, blasted it. There's a brick wall behind it. And he said, failed breach, this is bad. And then we're like, no, this is good. That means he's in there. It's a fake door, man. That's a fake door. That's yeah. learning through failure. He's in there. So then we went to, we said we're going to blast the um, the carport, which we another double door, but we know it opens because we'd seen cars coming in and out, leads to a driveway. And we didn't, I didn't know the helicopter crashed. Uh, so we said, hey, we're going to blast a carport. I thought they were doing a, a racetrack. I thought they were saying dash one going around, but I think they were saying dash one going down. Right. And they said, um, don't blow it. We'll open it. And the door opened and the thumb came out with a glove. I recognized it. Now, here's a very important lesson. Sometimes in life, it doesn't matter why you're here. You just are. I don't need it. I don't know why they're in there, they're, but they are. I'll, we'll talk about it later. When I talk to football teams, I tell them, it uh, doesn't matter why it's second and 15. It just is. What do yeah. we do now? Call the play. We'll talk about it in films. So if we live, I'll find out. So we. here's how dumb I am at this point because I'll call it focus. I walk into the main door. There's um, six guys standing there with different uniforms and American flags. It's the flight crew. Or no, that's not six. Sorry. One, two, th three guys. Three guys. And they're standing there with American flags. I looked at them, and my initial thought was, who the fuck are these guys? Building <laughs> register. We get inside. Now, they'd been in a couple gunfights. Uh, the guest house, they killed their brother. They killed um, the courier and his wife. We're in a long hallway and I'm looking down and, you know, I get into uh you don't want to stand in a hallway because the people start spraying, whatever. And mm -hmm. the guy next to me goes, helicopter crash. I don't know what he's saying. And I, I look at him and I go, what helicopter crash? And because I thought he meant some, there's, there's two 47s behind us, mm -hmm. 45 minutes. And uh, I, they weren't stealth. So I assumed they got shot down. And I, I thought I just lost 30 guys from another squadron. I'm like, holy shit. I go, what helicopter crash? And he goes, bro, our helicopter crashed. I think you walked right past it. <laughs> so my my ass is like, well, I was looking this way because that's Bin Laden's house or something like that. <clears throat> As we're doing this, the, the sniper is doing a loop 
um, with Cairo, the dog, and I think the dog handler. And they got to the point where the, because uh, they're trying to make sure no one runs out. They got to the point where the tail was and, and he came over the radio and said, um, all right, guys, be on alert. They're ready for us. They have a training mock-up of our super secret helicopter in the front yard. And uh, the boss said, no, jackass, that's ours. We crashed. And he said, yeah, that makes a lot more sense than the shit I was just saying, carry on. <laughs> so this is the conversation that's being had. Right. So, um, so I'm watching, uh, so I'm sort of standing back and we're not rushing anything. And way at the end of the hallway is a, a breaching problem. It's a barricaded door. And I'm watching dudes like go through, I'm looking for bombs, like, cause normally they'll hang from a ceiling. That's the thermal barrack charge is going to bring the house down. I don't see anything. And I'm watching dudes like move places and grab kids and put them with their parents or their, their relatives to make sure that, cause the kids are scared at this point. And I, and I remember a brief thought of, you know what, that's what the good guys do right there. Those mm-hmm. are good guys. The Al Qaeda is not doing that. We, we do that. <clears throat> so these guys are working the problem. And um, the woman, Maya, we'll call her that said, uh, I don't know where it is, but you're going to run into a stairwell. And, and when you um, find that stairwell, you will run into Khalid bin Laden. He lives on the second floor. And that's, that's the last line of defense. Mm-hmm. Here's how cool she was. She said, and if you ace him, you get a shot at the big guy. That's how she said right. it. So, so they ran into him on a stairwell. And the guy in front, he said, uh, he whispered a few things to Khalid, like his name, but come here in, in, in Urdu and, and I think Arabic. And it confused Khalid, so he presented himself with a gun. He got shot, and that was awesome. Uh, I, I remember thinking, man, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen. Um, never would have thought of that myself. The guy's a genius. And it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen up until seven seconds later because we go up the uh, second floor. The uh, guy split off to clear the left and the right, and is down. I'm now the number two man. There's a guy in front of me who's the number one man. He's pointing up the stairs at a curtain. The curtain's there. There's people moving behind it. He assumes that that's the um, – the, the suicide bombers. Now the, those are the ones. And so he starts, he doesn't know it's me, but he knows it's his guy. Cause I have my hand on his shoulder and he just starts saying, cause we're quiet as shit. We don't like to talk. One of the, I hate war movies when people start yelling, go, go, go. Cause it's stupid. Right. Might as well yell, here we are, here we are. Right. But he starts saying something like, yeah, Hey, you know, basically he's saying that's the suicide bombers, but if we go right now, we can beat them. And I, I remember squeezing him and I, it wasn't bravery. And I, I can close my eyes and see it. It was not bravery. It was more of a, I'm tired of thinking about blowing up. Let's get it over with. Let's see what happens. And then we went up the stairs. Yeah, absolutely. And so, and then we have this part from the way forward and man, it's just, it's even crazy reading this out loud, but I'll go ahead and read it. As I pivoted into the doorway, I could see Osama bin Laden standing in the dark bedroom at the foot of the bed, a glowing presence in the ghostly hue of my goggles. He wore a robe and was taller and leaner than I expected. He was also older and grayer than in the pictures from a decade earlier, but he had the same mournful face and long nose. He was standing behind one of his wives, Amal, nearly looming over her. I don't know if he was using her for a shield or something else, but it didn't matter. I shot him twice over her shoulder. One of the shots split open his head. After he fell to the floor, I shot him one more time and heard him take his last breath, saw his tongue loll out of his mouth. I could smell the inside of his skull like a funky odor of an animal's entrails. And so obviously those were the shots that killed the man that was in charge of a mission or in charge of a terrorist attack that killed thousands of Americans here on our soil. Right before that, uh, the guy whose shoulder you squeeze, he covered up some individuals that he thought had, you know, bomb vests on them, an incredibly heroic act. And then you take the shots uh, that obviously killed this man. So take us through it. You, you shot Osama bin Laden. I said it from the beginning of the show, but here we are 40 minutes. Yeah, later. Well, what was it like? True. Well, um, yeah, the guy in front of me did that. He, he, he shielded, um, like I said, he didn't know it was me. He knew it was one of his guys on the mission and he, you know, 
I don't want to talk about him too much because he is a silent professional, but if anyone deserves a Medal of Honor, it's that guy. I'll leave it at that. Um, but yeah, because he went he went one way and went this way. There's Bin Laden, and like you said, I recognize his nose. It was in the blink of an eye. Hmm. Um, it was he, He's not surrendering. It, it, had he been ideally no shirt on with his hands up, he's getting taken down, but because of his maneuver, he's a threat, and I'm assuming he's going to blow up. So I, the, the, the reason... Like I've heard people say, well, you, you needed facial recognition. You've never right. dealt with a suicide bomber. I have, and there, it, 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 all that you need to disable them, and that the way to do it is in here. So shot him twice, once more, and then moved them all. <clears throat> and I could, I could hear him taking his last breath, see his tongue, and I'm trying to get her out of the way. Again, we're the good guys, and you can sort of tell if she, you can sort of tell a threat. So I'm moving her. The, his two year old son was there, and the, here's the human element. Mm-hmm. As a father, this kid has nothing to do with this. So I move him, push them back. Other seals are coming in the room now. <clears throat> we're now we you know we're, we're realizing what we're doing, and, and um, I kind of, I'm walking back, and I, I know we need to take the picture. I know I need to dump some water on his face and whatever, but I'm sort of standing there first. And one of my guys came up to me, and he, he I'm sort of standing there, and he goes, he goes, hey, you good? I said, no, no. Um, what are we supposed to do now? Kind of in a daze, and he, and he, and he laughed, and he goes, now we find the computers. Like we do this every night, hundreds of times we've done this. And I said, you're right, I'm back. Holy shit. And he looked at me. Here's how here's how funny Navy SEALs are. He goes, Yeah, you just killed Osama bin Laden. Your life just changed. Now get to fucking work. Right. I yeah, mean, that, that's exactly that's it. What we did. And, and you know, we got we got the pictures. Um, if they ever release them, I, I hope they do. Um, those are my gloves in the in the picture, holding his head together. And then we went, I you know, that we started putting the body in the in the bag. I went down with a couple of guys to the second floor just to try to gather intel. We found so much shit, we couldn't believe it. I think it was three offices. And I'm talking like the old school tower, home computers, and trying to bust those up and take the hard drive, uh, uh, discs, uh, papers, pictures, all kinds of uh, drugs. We didn't take the drugs. I make a joke like, yeah, we found opium. And I, I realized how, if I lose my med kit, how much of that can I take? Right. <clears throat> but we found a bunch of stuff. I, I um, After we're putting it in different bags, consolidating, I ran back upstairs and I helped um, uh, the point man and I and two other guys carried his body bag downstairs, flights of stairs. Went outside, um, the sniper from the Somali Pirates thing that I talk about, he's outside, and, and we put the body bag next to him, and we said, here's your guy. And he goes, are you shitting me? I'm like, no. He goes, let's get out of here. So we go back in. We're kind of gathering guys up, realizing that you know we wanted a certain amount of time on deck, but now we need to blow up the helicopter. Uh, so we got a, a breacher and one of the – well, the, we brought an EOD guy with us. I should have mentioned him before. Mm-hmm. Explosive ordnance disposal, great guy. Uh, they're blowing this up, we're, and we're just kind of saddling dudes up, like, "Hey, you know, f- forget the women and children. Tell them that they can't leave the house because we have air. Whatever, we got to go. It's time to leave now because we're, you know, we wanted like 34 minutes. We're working on 45 minutes right now. Time to leave. So we blew that up. Um, the first team took our helicopter and the body. We took some DNA, and the other um, Chinook came in, picked us up. They got guys from a different squadron on there, which, which to me, again, guys who don't get credit is that on the Bin Laden raid, SEAL Team 6 rescued SEAL Team 6, which is cool as shit. And that now we're leaving. Like, I, I remember looking down, there was a guy, you can still find him on Twitter, who was tweeting. Live, right, live tweeting. And um, he was saying, why would they be running training exercise on a Sunday? I bef- I remember we're waiting for him, but I'm, I can see him tweeting. I can see his face lit up. And uh, normally on a target, like in Iraq, if I see a guy outside with a phone, I'm shooting him because he's setting off a bomb. But I look mm. at this guy, I'm like, they have no idea. They don't know we're here. So helicopter lands, we hop in, and then we take off. And um, 
now we're leaving. I got guys from that squadron. I got the sniper from um, from um, Somali pirate next to me. And the cool story about him is kind of when it when it set in what just happened. Um, when when he when he shot uh, initially shot the Somali pirates. That was the biggest mission in the history of the SEAL teams. And that, there was a, some jealousy and stuff. And he he wasn't sure to feel about how he did it, and he didn't want any recognition, all this stuff. And I would go up to him with this with Copenhagen and say, "Here, take Copenhagen from me. You're a hero." Don't ever forget that. Don't let him get you down. You're a fucking hero. And now we're sitting there. The guy next to me is from New York, and he goes, who got him? And I said, I, I think I did. And he goes, on behalf of my family, thank you. And then I look over, and, and the sniper hands me his Copenhagen. Go, here, take one of mine. Now you know what it's like to be a hero. And it's starting to – but we're leaving. Now we, we have 90 minutes to, to fly. We got we to gotta, – now they know we're here. And they're probably scrambling F-16s that we sold them to shoot us down. And they can, and but worrying about that's not going to stop it. So let's just 90 minutes, man. If we can live 90 minutes to cross that border, we get 50 years. So you start to watch again, and you're just kind of sitting there. You got a Copenhagen in. At this point, you're just you know spitting on your pants because whatever, it doesn't fucking matter. <laughs> and um, you know, you but you're looking at your watch like, well, it's, you know, I'm not counting, but it's been 10 minutes, man. It's, all right, it's been 20 minutes. Oh, shit, it's been 30 minutes. We got to get to 90 minutes. It's been 40 minutes. Now it's 50 minutes. And you're, it's I love sports analogies because most people can relate um, mm. to the team mentality. Um, it's like watching a no hitter at Fenway, top of the seventh, and you're sitting there with your drink, and you're like, "I'm not saying anything. Right. Uh, I don't want to jinx it, but now it's been 60, 70 minutes. Now it's 80 minutes. We got 10 minutes to go." And I was thinking about Miracle on Ice when Team USA is beating the Russian hockey team, right in a game they're supposed to lose, but they're winning four to three, and you can hear the nervous crowd. Ten. <laughs> nine we could still screw this up come on six five and then the pilot came over the radio and and the pilots always have that calm voice that people make fun of them for the, the calm voice is to keep you calm in the back calm down because like at thirty eight thousand feet they're going to say well you know you hit that pocket of air well obviously we've hit some weather up here at the, as opposed to yelling we're all going to die right so he came over the radio at 85 minutes. He goes, all right, gentlemen, for the first time in your lives, you're going to be happy to hear this. Welcome to Afghanistan. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> it's like you did it at that point. Like you're, you're basically yep. home free. So you end up coming back and well, uh, go well, for it. There's a minute of, um, we'll see the other helicopter left to meet a different 47 to refuel on a mountaintop. So now we're, now the thoughts are, okay, did they get back? Cause they're on it. Cause we split up. Mm-hmm. So there's that helicopter and this helicopter. Now they're flying back and we're flying back. And then we landed and then they landed and they're like, everyone's okay. And it's like, you know, and even then though, I mean, you know, cause with the, who did it, who gives a shit type stuff. But even then I was, I, I actually had a, a bottle of my own urine in my pocket the whole time. Cause I forgot to throw it out as I landed. I mean, I didn't think about it. So I'm going to throw it away in the, in the back of the hangar. And there's already air crew guys pointing going, that's the guy that got him. So people know at this point already, and that shit's spreading. So they, you know, that's the who got him, he got him type shit. So that's how that's yeah. And it caused, it caused a lot of issues. And, and even before we get there, there was, a, there was a quote from the way forward that I thought was really interesting and you didn't really elaborate on it. So I'm going to force you to, and here's the quote in a hangar at the airfield, we sorted the items that we had collected from bin Laden's compound, then wolfed down sandwiches. As we watched president Obama announce bin Laden's death live at a press conference at the white house. As Obama talked about the mission, bin Laden's body lay a few feet away from me, body bag unzipped. Surreal doesn't even begin to describe it. And then you just kind of move on and start talking about something else. Yeah. Well, I'm going to make you describe it. What okay. in the world was that like? Well, it was it was almost um, like so. Everybody's there. The um, other than the the woman that found him, she she got what she wanted. She left. She's so fucking cool. That's another story. But uh, 
um, the, all the analysts now are there. We've got all the gear laid out. Um, um, the three-letter agency guys are doing the DNA test, the official pictures, like the not the autopsy, but similar, like um, getting everything documented. And they brought us breakfast. And, and so guys are still in their gear, really happy. Like, because, I mean, imagine getting right. reborn, right? And uh, we have TV on. We're eating these sandwiches. And, and word had spread. And so, like, Geraldo Rivera is in a chair in a D.C. office. And he's saying, not confirmed, but we think Bin Laden's dead. And there's a USA chant going outside the White House. And it's – we're still – like, we realize this is a huge deal. But we're still in a bubble of people that do amazing shit. So we're not grasping worldwide. And then uh, they said, you know, our boss is on the phone with the with the White House, and they're not getting on TV until they understand how many people exactly were killed, who was left behind, how's their status, mm-hmm. you know, Geronimo. Um, and then we confirmed it, and then we're eating, and, and President Obama came walking down a red carpet wearing a red tie, just looking cool as ever, and, um, you know, feet from Bin Laden, and he said um, – Tonight, I can report to the American people and to the world, the United States conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden, the leader of Al-Qaeda. He keeps speaking, and I hear the president of the United States say Osama bin Laden. I look at Osama bin Laden, and I thought to myself, how in the hell did I get here from Butte, Montana? Now, he's still speaking, and now at this point, the president's still speaking. He's happy. And you can hear hear guys um, start to sort of say, say no one was hurt. Say no one was hurt. Mm -hmm. Because now... Our families know what happened. Exactly. And you got to tell them no one was hurt. And it took them a, a long, it might have been 30 seconds, but boy, that was a painful uh, thing. And then um, and then that was it. And then and he said, and then, all right, guys, let's clean up, um, get dressed. We're going to fly home. And so we went over to, we knew where the uh, the Seabees are, the construction battalion, Navy Seabees. They always have good food. They will always have beer. I don't give a shit what rule number one is. That's where you're going to find the great showers, the pizza, and hopefully the scotch. And so we did. We went over there. Um, guys cleaned up, showered up. We had our stuff to change into. They did have computers. And guys were just sort of not really checking emails, but just checking the internet. And it was all over the place. SEAL Team 6 kills Osama Bin Laden type shit. Mm. And, it, you know, it's it's almost like, yeah, we're all happy right now. But th- this is going to go badly for some of us. Yeah. And I mean, we've alluded to it uh, a lot throughout the show and you just alluded to it again, almost immediately after Operation Neptune Spear, things started to change for you in a negative way. Uh, And you kind of saw this a little bit with the uh, Captain Phillips mission. There was a little bit of infighting. There was obviously some resentment. There was some jealousy guys that didn't get to take the shot or, um, you know, squadrons that weren't on the mission or other teams that didn't have anything to do with it or people that were kept out of the briefing rooms that were trying to scroll their way in. You know, it even led to you having to change squadrons at one point, uh, you know, but you wanted to continue your career. Uh, you didn't just want to do this mission and then bounce out. Uh, and then again, people were throwing the quiet professional thing in your face. Oh, yeah. So just kind of talk through that time period because like, you know, obviously you do this incredible thing, a thing that you've said multiple times, you wouldn't take back, you wouldn't change for the world. But now you have this issue where it's like, wait, these are my brothers. Yeah. Why are they saying these things? Why are they doing these? Well, things? I mean, even, uh, even when we, before the mission, before we even knew what was happening and they're briefing part of a squadron and not letting another part of a squadron in. And we would come out and they say, what are you guys doing? And we would say, I honest to God don't know. And they thought we're lying to them. Right. That's not animosity right there because here, I, you know, if I'm a SEAL team six guy thinking, I thought I was tip of the spear. Now I'm not allowed on this part of the tip of the spear or whatever the bullshit. And then even think about the squadron that was deployed. Like when we went over there, they're already over there. Imagine being deployed and they send someone else over to yeah. do it. And they were totally professional. They welcomed us in. We, we played cards with them at night and they knew we we're getting it. 
and they just sucked it up like true professionals. Mm-hmm. Then you get back and and it's just, I mean, being at that level and being so close to, because it didn't really matter who got him. It still doesn't matter to me who got him as long as the team got him. But I can even relate to <clears throat> when I went to a different squadron, when I was deployed to Afghanistan 10 months or so, maybe not quite that long after the Bin Laden raid, I watched on one of the intel feeds as another squadron jumped into Somalia to rescue Jessica Buchanan. And they got an immediate gunfight, killed like 22 terrorists, grabbed two hostages and got out. I remember watching that and thinking, why the fuck are we not on that mission? That jealousy. It's like, wait a minute. Yeah. We've been Laden like a couple months ago. Like, but I can I can relate. <clears throat> and then when you know when we get back and, and like the Secretary of Defense comes down to talk to us at our command. And uh, we had a guy there who was a master chief, wasn't on the mission, but he had been at that squadron for 17 years. They wouldn't let him in the briefing room. It's like, guys, you're this is unnecessary because people are gonna hear the story eventually. And it just the, the animosity is there. Um, we were fine. I mean, it's it's one of those things where because everyone's asking about it, and it turned into one of those who got him. And like talking to your bartender, well, don't tell anybody, but you know, O'Neill shot him, blah blah blah. And then word spreads and weird stuff like we'd be at, at lunch at lunch at a Mexican joint, and all of a sudden tequila shots show up, and they'll say, "Well, this is anonymous, but you know who it's for." It's like in front of my guys. It's like, come on, guys. Yeah, I'm not looking for this shit. And then, um, you know. It's, it's one of those things where you can be pissed, but then extortion one seven, the helo gets shot down. We lose 31 guys. And it's like, I mean, the wor- we went from the best time of our life to the absolute worst planning missions to planning funerals. And it just, I mean, I'm not blaming anything on that, but that was the attitude. Morale's an all time low. <clears throat> and I, um, I, like I said, I, I didn't, I wasn't going to, I did decide I was going to go get out, but I want to deploy one more time to prove that I, you know, I came in through the front door. I'm leaving through the front door. So um, I we did have some meetings with some senior guys. Um, one of the master chiefs from the other squadron, Silver Squadron, um, was a red team guy, and and he said, "Why don't you come deploy with us? We need a team leader. We had a guy get hurt." So I did that one more time, just to um, you know, one more time at war. You know, I got to I got to shoot more guys with the same gun that killed Bin Laden, which I think is weird. And um, and then uh, the, and I, I told him, "Hey, I'm getting out," and I you know I got out um, August of 2012, a little a year uh, after the rape. Yeah, but it's it's interesting to hear you talk about that time period and how that's affected you moving forward. But it seems like you've come to a certain level of peace with some of those relationships and some of those things that have happened. And at the end of the day, it goes back to something I said earlier, which is control the controllables and you can't control how other people gonna act. And so and you get into that in in the latest book as well. But there are a few quotes from the way forward that I I wanted to put back to back to back here because I know that my audience is going to be curious about this. So I wanted to kind of throw it at you. So you have this quote after you kill your first deer and it's this. When I killed him, my first thought was I'm in the club. It was a similar feeling to when I shot my first deer. I wasn't sure if I felt bad about killing my first buck, but it was a rite of passage. I was a hunter. When I killed that man, I wasn't sure if I felt bad about that either. I mentally recorded the milestone and said to myself, this is what I do now. And then you have this quote after your last kill overseas on your last deployment. When it was done, I felt nothing. There was no adrenaline. There was no fear. Killing had become routine. That was the moment on that steep Afghan roadside with a cigar smoldering in my mouth that it became clear to me that it was my time to retire. And then one last quote here in the same vein. I killed a lot of people in Iraq and Afghanistan, a lot more than the one I'm most famous for. And I will tell you this, being responsible for so much death is a burden that I wish upon no one. So 
those quotes and that sentiment, Rob, reminded me of whenever I talked to Dakota uh, about some of these same things. It reminds me when I've talked to some other friends of ours that I won't mention on air here that I mentioned no, to you before, are. but yeah, before the interview. And it's the same sentiment with all of you. There, it's not that chest beating. I did this kind of the, the guy you mentioned earlier that I love kicking doors down, shooting people thing, but describe that burden because this, this was in warfare. It's not like you're, you know, killing for the mob. You're not a gun for hire, but it has this tremendous burden and it's got to hang from your soul. It just doesn't hang from your brain. Right. Yeah. I mean, like we said, when we first got there and a lot of the guys you mentioned too, we all wanted to be a part of the club because we'd heard about the guys that had been in combat and we've been training for combat close to it, but never in it. And once you get it, now you're part of the, you know, okay, I'm part of the guys. And, uh, that's, that's what we do. And it's, and you know, you get more and you, you know, you kill more people and it's just, you stop counting after a while. Um, but then you get, you get just numb to it. Uh, like I stopped getting adrenaline in gunfights. It, it, not necessarily. Well, it, it, all like when I'd be walking into a place and all of a sudden there's gunfire, all it meant was the night just got a little more exciting. It wasn't like mm. the big adrenaline rush, or anything. And then I realized that's, you know, complacency kills and complacency is caused by success. You have a tendency to say, this is the way we've always done it. And the unfortunate truth is a bullet only needs to be right once. Um, but, you know, the, again, too, like you know, the day I got out of the Navy, it's not like I had severe PTSD. It's when you get five years away from it. And the, the realization it's a small world. Um, and, you know, you can it's one thing from watching war on your TV to realizing you can be there in 15 hours. And then these are real people with real houses. And most people in a war zone are just trying to get on with their lives. A lot of people carrying guns are just trying to protect themselves. They're not they're not insurgents. Um, and they're just, you know, they're, they're, they're in the middle of dealing with, well, do I co uh, cooperate with the Americans or do I cooperate with Al Qaeda? I can't do both because one of the sides is going to kill me. And just the, the, the human element, um, <clears throat> the, um, everyone thinks they're right. Um, everything from, from, it's almost like now with Iraq, we invaded Iraq and killed hundreds of thousands of people for what? Because some politician wanted to get revenge because someone tried to kill their dad. What was that all about? You know, and uh, um, and it's, it's, even nowadays, you notice the the war hawks in D.C., man, they sure love a war from the belt wearing their fucking tie. Um, it, it, it really puts a human element to it. It's not, it's not a game. Um, and it's just it's, it's a it's a weird thought. That's, that's where, you know, we, we, a lot of people, you know, kind of get back to their faith and someone else's faith and the realization that uh, should maybe. Maybe we're all wrong and we're all right. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's a it's a rough thing that has to weigh on you, especially in light of what we've seen, uh, especially in the news as of late and some of the issues going on in the Middle East. But in the way forward, you and Dakota both talk about the fact that you have quite a few kills uh, and you and Dakota both, which I found interesting that you both have a similar story. You describe seeing the face of a single combatant from each of your careers. Mm -hmm. Okay. So he describes that, you know, the Taliban fighter that he ended up killing with a rock yep. and you describe the face of a man from Bakuba, Iraq. And so, uh, I, I like the way that you told the story. So I'll just kind of tee you up for it. Yeah. So tell us about this man, because of all the faces you've seen, people would be like, Oh yes, he he's obviously going to close his eyes at night and see the, the face of Osama bin Laden or some no. other high value target, but it's this one man in Bakuba. So, so tell us what happened yeah, yeah. and what white sticks in your brain. It was the house that we hit that happened to be, I mean, there was insurgents in the house and, and uh, he, he was the second guy. I think I killed in the house because um, we made entry on this big, uh, big, um, like open living room, and they had to engage the first guy in there. And then I, I went to um, one, some guys are clearing to my right, so I'm going to the left. And and one of the rooms was uh, turned out to be a bedroom, and I sort of made entry by myself, which you know you shouldn't do that shit, but some things changed. And I went in, there and there was a there was a dude in bed with his wife, and and uh, I'm trying to make movement on him, and he sort of woke up. 
and um, he started like throwing kicks and shit. And I wanted to give him the courtesy, you know, you just woke up, you're drowsy. I can, I can take a few kicks. And then there's a gun next to him. And, and I remember sort of something like, you know, come on, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. And he went for it. And then, you know, I'm looking right. I'm, I'm as close as you can be to a person and I had to shoot him. And then just the realization, like, you know, one minute there's dude sleeping next to his wife. And then next minute she sees him with his face blown open. And it's one of those things like, you know, he went for his gun. So I'm well within my rules of engagement, but I wonder if there was a different way we could handle that, you know? And, and, and again, at the time, fuck him. He's Al Qaeda. But now it's like, well, was he? <laughs> it's like, um, and, and cause again, it's, it's, it's at some point for me anyway, it was, it was, uh, everything was, um, America apple pie defending freedom, the constitution. But now it's mm-hmm. like, I'm in this guy's bedroom and you just, you want, you know, and again, um, perfectly within my rules of engagement. I never, I never murdered anybody. Um, and everyone, like, even when I joke, like everyone I killed had it coming, but you just, you know, it doesn't, doesn't, you know, late at night when you're having a scotch at 8 30 PM when the lights are out and it's like, well, and you've had a lot of time to chew on these things. And that's what you said earlier. It's not the immediacy of like, okay, you're still in deployment. And you're thinking about it when you get back, you know, to your bed or something like that. But the thing that I'm curious about, because you mentioned, you've mentioned God in this, in this podcast, you know, you've talked about, you know, a plan. I know that you've given speeches at churches even here recently, and you made yeah. a nice funny comment about Joel Osteen and Lamborghinis. So I, I appreciated that. Yeah, but I am very curious about your own personal faith here, because I know that there are guys that you and I both know that yeah. are in that community that are very much so on the agnostic atheist side. They don't really care about that. They don't really see God in their work. And then there are other people that are incredibly, incredibly devout. And so in your books, you, you allude to it, but you don't really go into your personal faith. So if you had to kind of put your, put your flag in the ground somewhere, where are you? Well, I'm, I'm, um, I'm a, I'm Catholic. Um, and it's funny like I like to joke with people because like one of my jokes, I said this on, on, the. Uh, in the South on an altar once that it didn't go over well. One of my jokes, I said, you know, I was, I was raised Catholic and I was Catholic till I eat, reached the age of reason. Oh yeah. How did you expect that to go? Well, I mean, come on. I was messing with them. <laughs> no, but the, the point that I make too is, is um, I think that, uh, um, I, like I said before, we're all, we can, it's possible that as far as God goes, that we're all right and we're all wrong, that maybe we don't possess the medical uh, mental capacity to understand what it is. But I mean, if you look around, there's, there's, there's no way God's not out there. Um, but it's just a question of how much interference did man have with the word? So um, I'm, you know, I, like I said, I'm Catholic. I, I say the rosary, but um, I'm also, um, it's, I mean, Muslims know they're right. And his, Hindus know they're right. Southern Baptists know they're right. Catholics know they're right. Maybe we're all right. Um and I just think, you know, as opposed to killing each other over something we can't necessarily prove, maybe just a little bit of understanding. That's kind of where I'm at. And I don't, I don't, you know, I don't preach too much. It's more of that, but more of a, um, I think that um, if you're truly good to one another, you're going to be just fine. And so as a quick follow-up to that, and I asked a, a similar question to a mutual friend of ours. I keep alluding to that. I sound so douchey now that I no, hear myself saying it. Oh, oh, you know all my friends that are your friends? Yeah, but, but, but it's important you say that too, because if, if people knew you're talking about, you see these people, these complete badasses, yeah. like you got to realize they're also, uh, they're also um, smart, I guess. Yeah. Well, there are layers to people as well. But so from your perspective, um, obviously it's a little bit of a universalist bent in in terms of like maybe everybody's right. But do you think it's knowable which way of thinking about the spiritual world 
is correct because there there is a pantheon, but the differences between Islam and Christianity are vast because they think Jesus was, you know, a prophet that, you know, didn't die on the cross. He swooned. And then Christians obviously think he was the, the resurrected savior. Right. And that's what I tend to believe. Do you think it's actually knowable or do you feel like it's all completely about faith? Well, I don't know. I mean, probably a lot about faith because no, I mean, you got to figure that if you sit with a room full of kids and you whisper in one ear and you keep telling everyone, it's going to be a different word by the time it gets to you, you know how the whole thing changes. Um, you know, you got to figure a lot of, a lot of, um, scripture and stuff was never written down. It was told by mouth. So some might, you know, even some, some of the moderate Muslims I know said, you know, that, uh, the word came here was bastardized by man and then the prophet Muhammad fixed it or whatever. But, um, Again, I don't. Th- I don't think we're supposed to understand all of it. But I mean, if 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 your religion is based on violence, you're probably working for the devil. Um, if 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 you're not out there to kill someone based on he doesn't believe what you believe, so you should cut his head off. You're wrong. I would say. Um, and again, it's. I think it's. It's not. I'm not trying to simplify it. I just think I'm trying to say it's more complex, and we can just nail it down. And say this is the truth. Because if you look at the history of religion, too, some religious decisions were made based on someone individual greed. So um, it's uh, you know. But I think the the the, the I hope the nucleus of all of it is, is about peace and getting along because um, and the good news is too. Um, I travel a lot. I talk to a lot of people face to face. Most people are good. I've had I've had Muslims come up to me and seriously say thank you for what you did because that 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 brand of that of that version of Islam is a stain on what Islam is. So it's I mean most people are good. They're, most people are not like Twitter. They're real really good people. Yeah, I'm sure that was a crazy compliment to get from someone like that. And then the thing that I would encourage you to do and where most of this starts for a lot of people that I've had this conversation with is it starts with the resurrection of Jesus. Either that happened or it didn't. There's no opinions on that. That's either historical fact or it's not. And so the further that you you dive into that, the further you see that the evidence for that is is fairly good. So to transition now a little bit, Rob, into something a little bit different, because when Afghanistan fell in last year, um, I immediately reached out to everyone I knew that had any attachment to Afghanistan or the military or gold star widows to get their thoughts on what happened. And, you know, we, we got these kind of like small snippets of time. I even talked to uh, a gal that was on the ground there when Afghanistan fa- uh, fell, Holly McKay, and kind of got her story. But for you and a lot of your buddies, you shed a lot of blood in Afghanistan. You had bloodshed in Afghanistan. There are brothers of, of yours that you lost in yep. Afghanistan. And you talk about it in both books. You talk about in the way forward that the United States is great at starting wars, but we're really, really bad at ending them. And then in the operator, you talk about how most Afghans, especially the tribal Afghans, they don't think like we do. Like they don't want our version of democracy and all these different things. But for you, when you saw things falling apart and when, when you saw what happened, I know you're a very outspoken political guy as well, but what were your thoughts as to kind of what happened when we botched Afghanistan like that? Uh, it was 100% predictable and 100% preventable. You, you don't need – what I said in the operator was um, we were great at starting wars. The reason we lose wars is because we get politicians and lawyers involved, and that's the worst thing you can do ever, especially getting politicians involved. I can't really think of anything politicians have ever solved. They're really good at making things bigger, and that's about it, and then obviously taking a kickback. Um, when If we took, for example, the bin Laden team and put them in a room and said – come up with the worst plan possible right now to get out of Afghanistan, we would have come up with exactly what they did. Man. Immediately give away Bagram Airfield, immediately give away Jalalabad, run away, uh, get all of the military out, and then let, let the other people fend for themselves. In, 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 uh, I mean, just the nonsense seeing that um, the military has a tendency to lie to each other up the chain of command. I'm going to tell my boss what he wants to hear so I can get promoted. And so they're trying to tell them, yeah, the Afghan army is ready to fight. You know, we've been training him for 20 years or whatever. 
anyone who worked with the Afghan army said they are going to fall in three days. There's no doubt about it. We couldn't even get these guys to show up for work, like mm-hmm. to train because, you know, they're just, they're lazy. Um, they're, they're, um, they're in it for the money. They don't really care. Their heart's not in it. <clears throat> Whereas the Taliban, their heart's in it. And the Al Qaeda, their heart's in it. Cause they're fighting, like they said, they're fighting, they're fighting for what they believe in. Um, and just the way they, the, whoever thought that giving the Taliban control of secure, external security, they're going to send a suicide bomber in. It's so easy for them to say, oh, that wasn't us. That was Al-Qaeda. That was ISIS. Right. The ISIS-Al Qaeda thing in Afghanistan, they're the same dudes. They carry a different flag. It didn't change. These are the warlords. Um, and just um, the only guy that got in trouble was a colonel who called him out stateside. General Milley didn't get in trouble. The CENTCOM didn't get in trouble. These horrible decisions didn't get in trouble. And then we forget about it. 13 lives were lost in the blink of an eye. Preventable, predictable. We could have told you that's going to happen. But these um, these people in China, I mean, no one's no one's held responsible. Um, their eyes not on the ball. They'll tell you right now the first the first concern of national defense is climate change. All right. I mean, that's how you lose to China and, and Russia right there. Well, like even with that in mind, as I'm watching the military again, as a, as a non-veteran, that's one part of my life that I really wish I could go back and fix, but I am where I am. This is where God has me at this time. But you hear about the wokeness in the military at an air force, uh, guy send me an email that he got, uh, from, from the United States military, basically training them on how to put their pronouns in their, in their signature on their email. You know, there's the lowering of standards for, you know, the, the, special operators, you know, uh, trying to get females in or trying to get a wider swath of people firing soldiers that are unvaxxed, like all, all these different things. Yeah. When I look at it, I'm like, the world is better when America is strong, but all the signals we're sending from our strength, which is our United yeah. States military is we're really, really concerned about having, you know, gender queer purple headed trans people like oh, in the military, as opposed to having the most lethal military yeah. possible. So what are your thoughts on that? Obviously, because you were at the the top tier of the, of the United States military to see what it's kind of devolving to right now. It shouldn't be an ex- the, the military should not be an experimentation ground, which it is. And they're 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 concentrating on crap that's not important. The the military, one of my favorite acronyms is KISS. Keep it simple, stupid. And what military the military should be able to do is shoot, move, and communicate. Go in somewhere, crush things, kill people, and win. And that's it. And um I saw it coming when I was leaving uh, the Navy in 2012. I was in Afghanistan, I'm sitting in a room full of SEALs, and we're watching the news, and the the thing at the time was repealing don't ask, don't tell. Right which isn't a big deal. And we're, we're sitting there and, and they're making a huge deal out of this. And we're doing training online of all this. And I'm looking at my guys knowing damn well, some of my guys are gay. And I, I said, do any of you care if anyone's gay or the color of their skin? And everyone's like, no, as long as they can live up to the standards, I don't give a shit. No one cares. It's the politicians that make it something. If I don't, I don't care what you look like or where you're from. Like I said, if, if we don't lower the standards and you can get in there, then get in there, get in the fight. Fine. But stop throwing this nonsense. They're concentrating on shit that's not important. They're, it's busy work. They're putting busy work in there, and the eye is off the ball. And we're going to learn it the hard way, either getting attacked through our southern border or when you know China decides to crush us. Yeah, it's it's a shocking thing to see, and I hope that we can change it. But you mentioned it earlier. We have a lot of these higher ups, a lot of these you know generals and things like that. They keep failing upwards, and then whenever they roll out of the military, they roll roll right onto a board of directors uh, for one of these uh, military contractors and all that. It's just it's an absolutely crazy thing, and we could spend the rest of the day talking about it. But I did want to move on as we work towards the end here. Uh, I want to talk about fatherhood a little bit because that's a theme that comes through a couple of your books because mm-hmm. you personally have a very unique relationship with your dad. You know, you connected over basketball 
basketball. And I, I loved how you described it in the book. And in the operator, you have this quote from when you were, you know, writing about your time in buds, you said this, I would never quit. I was certain of that. Everyone I knew back home told me I couldn't do it. There was no way in hell I was going to put my father's name in the line of quitters. He was the only one who believed in me. And it's like, like as a, as a father of a, of a young son and another son on the way, it's like, I'm almost getting choked up even thinking about that quote. But you also talked about in the operator, you describe calling your dad right before you went on the Bin Laden mission. And obviously you can be like, hey, dad, this is Operation Neptune Spear. I'm going to go try to kill the big guy. Like you couldn't say anything, but your dad could sense that something was awry. Something was yeah. not normal. He knew what you did for a living, but that something was different. But even after the mission, when he heard the news that bin Laden was killed, he heard it on the news like the rest of us did. He could sense that you were the one that took down Osama bin Laden. Again, a very interesting connection between you and your dad. But for you as a father. Obviously, you and your dad spent a lot of time together growing up, but with your children, by virtue of, of your job for, for large swaths of their life, daddy was gone. Daddy was off you know, training and doing workups and deployed and all those different things. So just give me your overall thoughts on, on fatherhood, You know what you took from, from daddy O'Neill and kind of how you, you put that into how you are a dad today. Well, it's, it's, it's difficult for me now because uh, just because for security issues, I have stuff in place that I can't talk about. So right. um, they're not with me right now. I get to see them now and then, but... Um, just, just the awareness, the situational awareness that I, for some reason, had always taught my kids. Um, walking through airports, I would mm -hmm. little things like I would hand them the ticket and say, "Which when they're five years old, take me to the gate. Where are we going? What's the flight?" Um, teaching them how to do that stuff. So now they're they're able to, you know, when I meet them, like they fly cross country by themselves, and you know they're teenagers. Um, but uh, j just from an early age, you know, the the, the helicopter parenting is not going to help. It's okay to 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 get dirty. Um, sometimes it's going to hurt. Um, you're going to fail, but learn from it, stuff like that. So we're, we're there now. And, uh, I'm fortunate with my girls. They, um, for some reason, girls always love their dad. So I'm rarely in the doghouse, but sometimes am. but, uh, <clears throat> yeah, just, um, you know, like every parent will say time flies. So take advantage of every moment with them. Um, you know, put, put the, put the iPhone down and, t you know, teach them how to, how to play chess or something like that. Just something, something cool. Teach them how to swim. Yeah. Get engaged. Well, I, I gotta say too, cause you mentioned this in both books and, when you read through some of your stories and some of the missions and even some missions that we didn't even discuss, like the biggest firefight you were ever in, we didn't even talk about on this show. A lot of the stuff that you've done seems too good to be true. Like that's impossible. How could that ever happen? But did you really make 105 free yeah. throws in a row? Cause I think you're full of crap because no. like, I think the most I've ever done was like six or seven, 105. Yeah. You know, what's funny is uh, the only one that saw it was my father and he'd, he'd lie to, to, to the death for me. But no, we, we had, um, we had a competition where, <clears throat> when my when my um, basketball season ended, our basketball season started till next season, and we would play every day two three hours a day. And the rule was we don't leave the gym until one of us makes twenty in a row. And so he he played at the University of Montana, so he's a really good basketball player. Um, so we would you know you start on a make, and then the other guy rebounds, and um, we can't leave till we make one of us makes twenty, which was pretty easy at the time. And, and also at the beginning of the season, twenty was a stake at the Derby. So make 20 free throws, leave the gym 20 for a stake. But every time you get the stake, it goes up to 25 and then 30. It goes up by increments of five. So we could be at like 20 to leave the gym, but 45 for a stake. You can still leave the gym, but don't get 45. But we got to a point where I want to say he made 89 or 91 in a row, which was the family record for like a week and a half. And then the next week I made 105. But it's almost one of those, um, you kind of get in a zone. And it's like, it's like, um, 
it's like with shooting, do everything like you do anything. You want to be good at something, do it a thousand times. You want to be great, do it 10,000 times. So it's like bringing the pistol from your holster and hide the same movements. This one's here, you know, dribble, 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 spin, bend your knee up and out. And like the argument was, um, do you watch the ball or do you watch the rim? I would always watch the rim. He would always watch the ball. That's just how we do it. But um, so you just kind of get in a zone, you hit it and I, you want to pass the guy the ball back. So the, you know, the, the lines are spinning. I don't want to screw with it. And, and you only dribble the first time and you just keep shooting. And I remember being euphoric till 105, but boy, I was pissed at 106 when I hit the front of the rim. <laughs> Dude, yeah, that's what really happened. I'm, I'm not there now. I, I, I can get 20 in a day maybe, but. That's just crazy that like as soon, but what's funny about that is a lot of people don't understand that, that you were pissed that you missed the 106 shot. Dude, I totally get it. It's that like you're in the zone. You just want to stay there, but you know, it was bound to stop eventually, but kind of the last question of the day, obviously you've got a lot of stuff. We've talked a lot about your career, but what are you up to now? Aside from being a best-selling author? Um, the beer company is awesome. We have a veteran owned beer company called armed forces brewing company. And, uh, we're coming up with a new, um, we, well, it's all based off of, um, the military. So we have, um, the, we have cat shot beer for, um, uh, aviators off the, the carrier. We have jarhead beer. We have uh, soldier beer for special operators. We have special hops, which is fun. So right. our first brewing company you can check it out. We got uh, cool investment opportunities, stuff like that. <clears throat> um, my apparel shop, RJO apparel, uh, front toward enemy is one of our keep it simple, stupid uh, mentalities where uh, on the front of a claymore, it says front toward enemy, just point this at the enemy. Don't point it at yourself. So this is a, a kind of a metaphor for life. You got a problem, just face it, front toward enemy, things like that. Um, some public speaking stuff. Um, I'm going to start a podcast pretty soon, uh, stuff like that. So robertjoneal.com, all my speaking opportunities, stuff like that. All right, and all that will be in the show notes, guys, so you can check that out. But we've gone everywhere in this conversation. I really appreciate you getting into all the detail that you did, but that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? I appreciate it, Kyle. Thank you very much. Rob O'Neill, thank you for coming on Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Cool, man. Thanks. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Rob O'Neill. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So here are the links I've got for you today. I've got a link to Robert's website. So if you want to get to him via social or get him to come speak at your event, all those things, you can do that through the website. I've also got a link to both of his books, so The Way Forward and The Operator. And then we've got the Armed Forces Brewing Company that he mentioned there at the end of the interview. All right, guys. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. We do appreciate it. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. You can follow us on Instagram and TikTok and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And we also want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Cutting the Ties, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah.